Hello and welcome to the IMB podcast co-presented by IIM Bangalore's communications office and the student media cell. This podcast series aims to become a platform to discuss the latest business, economic, management and social issues that matter. The podcasts will witness IIM Bangalore's fraternity including but not limited to the faculty members, students and alumni and provide their insights and perspectives on the topics and issues surrounding us. In June this year, Financial Times asked a very pertinent question: whether the coronavirus pandemic was taking women back to 1950s. Statistics and empirical research already suggest that women are being disproportionately hurt by the pandemic's economic fallout. To discuss how the COVID-19 pandemic has created challenges for India's female workforce and what needs to be done to address these issues, we have with us today Professor Hema Swaminathan. from the Center for Public Policy at IIM Bangalore. Professor Swaminathan earned her PhD in agricultural economics from the Pennsylvania State University in the US. Her recent and ongoing research focuses on inequality in income and wealth distributions between men and women and its implication for welfare outcomes. Professor Swaminathan has consulting experience with several international organizations which include the Asian Development Bank the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, International Center for Research on Women, and the United Nations Development Programme. Welcome, Professor Hema, to this episode of the AMBI podcast. Thank you very much, Ashay um, and Kushagra. Thanks for um, having me here. Professor, uh, on the very outset, I want to know that what are your initial thoughts on the gender imbalance that has deepened as a result of the pandemic? and uh, moreover do you think that there this is being given considerable attention by business government and society um certainly i would say that uh, gender imbalances have been considerably um heightened because of the pandemic it's not as if they didn't exist but i think the pandemic has sort of uh, deepened existing fault lines and sort of laid it out bare um for sort of uh, for us to view it and i must add that gender is uh, only one part of it there's a lot of inequities across the board um, and sort of gender uh, is uh, one angle to all of it and there's much more than what is being talked about you know you see only very limited angles of gender inequities and imbalance um, we talk about it in the cities and there's some bits of it in the urban press or in the english medium press but i think there are many more aspects to it and which we'll uh, touch upon and uh, i would say no definitely we are not doing anything considerable about it uh, business government or society in fact i would say the whole pandemic is not being treated with the seriousness it ought to be um, leave alone gender imbalances professor how has the pandemic affected women in general consequences in work environment setup and labor force participation uh, that happens to be the topic of discussion for this episode of the podcast is just one aspect uh, what according to you are the other aspects which are being overlooked and definitely need more attention you know um, this is a great um, question because i think we are all so focused on the economic implications of this pandemic and of course women's labor force participation at one level is also an economic implication 
But uh, labor force participation, even though it's economic, has non-economic components, and I'll get to that. But there are sort of this pandemic, I think, has laid open several other issues. There's always been a silent pandemic in Indian societies, silent because it's never talked about. And that is the issue of domestic violence or intimate partner violence. Right. I mean, if you looked at, look at the National Family Health Survey uh, of 2015-16, which is the NFHS4, you'll find that 33% of ever married women have experienced physical, sexual or emotional spousal violence. This is one third of the population of ever married women. Right. Um, and this is not talked about. Now, the pandemic has really heightened vulnerability of women to violence because both partners are now stuck at home. So if you are in this really uncomfortable uh, and abusive relationship um, and the, on top of it, you're dealing with all the lockdown and the pandemic related frustrations, um, economic, non-economic as they may be. Coupled with that, now there are no exit options for women. You can't even run away from home or approach a neighbor or visit a counseling center if you want to. So this is really a pressure cooker situation for women. So a recent report in the Hindu said that in 2020, between March 25th and May 31st, 1,477 complaints of domestic violence were made by women. And this 68-day period recorded more complaints than those received between March and May in the previous 10 years. So we've seen the highest in a decade, right? So there's, that's, there's that one angle that ought to worry us, right? Now, what's happening with health and education? India generally performs poorly in human capital building blocks, right? But uh, if you're now talking about women, Health is going to take a big hit because anyway, our health systems are overworked. Um, they are not being able to cater to even the regular sort of uh, non-pandemic crises. So if there are choices to be made on whose health is going to get attention, who is going to approach, what's going to happen, it's always women and girls that are going to be more affected. Similarly for education. So, right, you know, I think we've got to see this in the backdrop of falling incomes, uh, greater livelihood insecurities, right? And if there is a budget constraint, whose, ne whose, whose needs are going to get prioritized and whose needs are going to get put on the back burner? There's ample evidence from India and other developing countries that it's women and girls who are going to go onto the back burner and whereas men and boys' needs are going to be prioritized, right? So, this could happen with health, this could happen with education of boys and girls, this could happen with food security and nutrition. So while we are not talking about only a generational effect now, this has intergenerational impact. So we could be dealing with malnourished girls for the next two to three generations. And malnourished girls, I mean, is a problem in and of itself. But you're also going to raise then a set of children who are going to be uh, malnourished because their mothers didn't have were not healthy, right? So I think the repercussions are vast. Um, also, then what the pandemic is, we are also talking only about urban India. What's happening in rural India? What's happening to women there? This whole reverse migration crisis, right? How is that impacting women in agriculture? Suddenly, the return of men folk. Uh, again, it's going to exacerbate food security situations, what's going to happen inside the house, what's going to happen to agricultural labor, what's going to happen, right? So I think there's just so much more than labor force participation that uh, is 
is just not getting the attention uh, that it needs. And uh, the other point is with the pandemic is that when people are constrained, there's you, you're already seeing that uh, there is a loss of livelihoods. So people are liquidating assets. Occasionally, you will read about someone selling off their land or someone selling off a house or something of that sort. But more often than not, what gets sold off is women's assets. It's the jewelry that is going to get pawned. It's the jewelry that's going to get sold, which from a household risk perspective makes a lot of sense because you do you want to sell the asset that is most liquid and one that will be much harder to recover in the future, right? So if you own an acre of land versus you have some jewelry, from a household uh, perspective, selling of the jewelry makes more sense. But from an individual's perspective, selling of the jewelry, usually that is the only asset to which women might have some claims, puts her in a much more economically vulnerable situation later on. Um, so, uh, I mean, there's just myriad implications of what is happening. Right, right, Professor. So uh, in 2014, you had co-authored a research and uh, it showed that even within non-poor households in India, women show higher deprivation along certain dimensions when compared to men. So could you please elaborate what are these dimensions and if at all they do, how do they relate to our topic of discussion today? So these uh, dimensions, so what I think our paper was trying to do is saying that let's move from looking to the household to the individual, just to give you a bit of context. Let's not do all our measurements at the household level. Let's recognize individuals exist within households. And there's a lot of uh, resource distribution within a household that is not always equitable, right? So the deprivation for women was actually highest in asset ownership. So it sort of directly relates uh, to the point I was making above. Um, asset ownership and in terms of education. Although India has been a success story um, in terms of uh, early education for boys and girls, and girls have actually caught up uh, with the boys, so we have enrollment ratios of girls that are higher. For a set of older women, that's not true. Uh, that's happened only in the last, say, 10 to 15 years. So if you look at older women, older women are still more likely to be deprived um, in education. So it does uh, relate I think very much to the pandemic. The big worry is that the pandemic in terms of educational gains that we have made should not set us back. So girls education should not suffer now because there is uh, no money to send them to school. Right, Professor. Uh, data brought out by different surveys highlight that the percentage of job losses due to the pandemic is greater for the female workforce as compared to that of the male workforce. And this is something that is not, not just true for India, but is a phenomenon worldwide. What do you think are the primary reasons behind this? So, you know, this pandemic, unlike previous um, sorts of recessions and depressions, has hit the sectors where women are employed uh, in greater proportion. So if you think is what got shut down, say, during lockdown and what is really taking a long time to revive, would be your hospitality industry, would be retail of all kinds, would be the leisure uh, segment, fashion and apparel, right? And it, it is in these sectors, there's a greater representation of women. So which is why you see that the job losses are proportionately greater for women than men. You might, in absolute numbers, men's jobs have probably gone more. But uh, if you look at it as a proportion of the workforce, um, uh, it, it's, it's just a simple reason of what the pandemic has shut down. 
it is feared that pregnant women and new mothers will be the first in line for job losses uh, why such a distinction this has nothing to do with the pandemic unfortunately this crisis existed pre pandemic also uh, this is actually uh, what is called the motherhood penalty what that means is that there's a negative impact of childbirth and caring of young children on women's labor market outcomes unfortunately this is not confined to developing countries this is sort of a global phenomena right uh, what is interesting is fatherhood does not impose any such penalty in fact you see young fathers actually getting a raise or a bonus uh, because they are supposed to now have uh, extra mouths to feed right mothers and uh, uh, with young children or pregnant women the reason that they sort of uh, their jobs might be one of the first to go is because there's discrimination in the labor market and partly that ties to the gendered notions of work and responsibility that we have in society women are supposed to be uh, in charge of social reproduction by and large and by social reproduction what i mean is that their main work is um, taking care of the house children and the elderly and so they are really responsible for what we call the care economy whereas men are typically seen as the breadwinners right so you have this very typical notion of male breadwinners and women as primary caregivers so what is assumed is that once a woman has a child or once she is pregnant and she is expecting a child is that her commitment to the workplace will come down and that she will become less ambitious she will become less productive because she is now going to focus all her attention on the uh, on the new baby or on child care right which is why as an employer if you think um someone is less uh, uh productive and someone is going to be less dependable and not going to probably show up at meetings and all of it in your mind they are also more disposable right so which is why uh, when employers think they are less committed to their work um they are going to let them go right so it's it's really nothing but a patriarchal mindset Uh, that operates and unfortunately uh, to some extent i mean women work actually a double burden of trying to keep those who are sort of in the professional workforce have this double burden of home and work um and uh, and that never sort of gets uh, recognized or taken up so uh, it's it, it's just plain and simple how the labor market operates According to New York Times, uh, a preprint of a study soon to be published in the academic journal Gender, Work and Organization showed that in heterosexual couples where both mother and father were continuously employed and have children under 13, mothers have reduced their work hours 4 to 5 times more than fathers. And this has widened the gender gap in work hours by 20 to 50%. What consequences do you think such a gap will have in months or perhaps years to come? you know this uh, gap that you're talking about they've reduced their work hours because they are also trying to care for the children right so this actually directly relates to the previous point that you brought up as to why are pregnant women um, and young mothers let go so now that with the lockdown and closure of schools and uh, daycare centers 
men and women are both juggling uh, uh, work and home, but women are sort of taking on the work bird, uh, home burden much more uh, than men are because of sort of expectations and specializations and, um, so, and, and that's the way things are structured. Um, and so something has to give, right? So what gives is that A, there are two reasons, there are two things at work here. One is that women are generally not as well paid as men. So of course, from a household perspective, scaling back the person whose job is sort of the supplemental income makes sense. But what impact does it have on the women? It actually has phenomenal impact. You know, when we talk of employment, um, and when I say employment, let's think decent, non-exploitative work, which is what sort of say ILO would call decent work conditions. If you have those kinds of work, then it's actually very empowering. It's in fact a well-paid job or economic employment is the cornerstone of economic empowerment uh, for women. A, it gives you an independent source of income. B, it's also about the non-material aspects. The fact that you get out, you have mobility, you have uh, you have your own sets of colleagues and friends. It gives you self-esteem. It gives you confidence, right? So there is much more to it than just um, the economics part. And of course, the economics part is huge, right? It reduces your economic dependency on the household or on your partner when we're talking about heterosexual couples here. So it does reduce your dependency. And why do we want to reduce economic dependency? Because unlike what is sort of commonly theorized that everybody is pooling their income, that's not strictly true. Income pooling does not always happen and it's not always the husband who is some sort of an altruistic dictator. I mean, these are sort of models from economics. Let's say you have one person uh, who's like an altruistic dictator who's the breadwinner and you're pooling your income and everybody is a happy family. Uh, the reality, unfortunately, is quite different. Um, income pooling may not happen. If there is greater economic dependency, then that means there is unequal power in the relationship. With unequal power, there is greater instance of domestic violence. Uh, there could be greater instance of other kinds of abuse. Right. And resource control can also now reflect in other empowering measures for women, greater agency, greater say in household decision making um, and greater say in household decision making, apart from, say, sort of important for women in herself. It's also shown to have beneficial uh, sort of uh, outcomes for children, particularly children's uh, uh, human capital, both health, education, and overall well-being, which again, in some ways, goes back to this gender stereotype that if you give one rupee to a man, he's going to much more spend it on what what would be called private goods, whereas if you give one rupee to a woman, uh, at least a greater proportion of it would be spent on sort of public goods, so which benefits the family and not just herself, right? So unfortunately, there is some truth to all of those uh, stereotypes. I think losing employment uh, will is uh, is uh, unfortunately going to have negative repercussions both for women as well as for households and families for a very long time. Right, Professor. So uh, you know these days uh, in the uh, in the pandemic we are talking about uh, work from home models. Uh, do you think that uh, working remotely? closes the gender wage gap or boosts more women into top jobs? 
Well, prior to the pandemic, having uh, sort of working remotely or uh, well, prior to the pandemic, I guess working from home at this scale did not exist, right? So prior to the pandemic, what we had was uh, maybe part-time jobs, greater flexibility um, in the labor market. And let me tell you, greater flexibility, part-time jobs, um, or not even part-time, just greater flexibility with working hours was just a no-no. Uh, you would see that women who choose flexible jobs were highly penalized in terms of their earnings because it's not as if earnings and the hours worked have a linear relationship with each each other this relationship is highly non-linear you won't you won't work one hour and get paid uh, x amount of rupees two hours and you get two x no beyond a point the value of your being able to work long hours is there is this non-linearity that is built into it and this is particularly true for some of the really high paying professions like finance legal corporate structure where this non-linear relationship of earnings with respect to hours worked is that relationship is very strong uh, Post-pandemic, so I mean, I don't think that necessarily flexibility is good, has been good for women. And partly this, again, is the psyche that they think that when a woman is wanting for flexible uh, work hours, they think she's going to be doing the laundry or feeding the child and not necessarily being committed to the work, right? So which is why there's been some penalty for flexible work hours. And also certain kinds of jobs have just demanded uh, this 24-7 kind of uh, availability on tap. Um, so that, again, has never worked for women just because of the myriad things that they are catering to. Post-pandemic, now there is greater sort of emphasis on work from home. I'm not quite sure how it's going to work out, uh, to be frank. Um, I think it could be good, but will employers going forward necessarily see work from home in the same way or will we come back to our old habits of uh, saying that working from home is not necessarily good or that flexibility is going to is going to uh, mean that you're actually diverting your attention right so i think unless you change your employee mindset uh, that you have towards your employees that you're asking for flexibility because uh, you just need to get different things done at different times um, and i think uh, this will only work when Men also want more flexible times, want more work from home, right? If it's only women making those demands, then I think it will go against them. Right, Professor. So uh, when I started this podcast, uh, I quoted Financial Times. It said that, you know, coronavirus crisis is taking women back to the 1950s. Uh, what are your thoughts regarding this? Oh, gosh, I hope not. <laughs> Um, I think it's really up to us whether we want to take it to the 1950s or not. I think now we know much more. Um, we are, uh, as a society, as countries, uh, we have a much better understanding of the roles that men and women play. There's much more technology at our disposal, which is which can help both with um, housework and house management as well as with uh, uh, technology to be able to do your work from wherever you are. Right. I think we are also now in a position to have much more enlightened discourses. And I guess there's this whole constituency that's realized what gainful and decent employment really means to women. Right. It not just benefits women, it benefits men as well as women. So I would be somewhat optimistic and say we won't go back 
to the 1950s that uh, we won't lose the gains um, that we have made. And uh, there's a lot more acceptance about women as breadwinners. But I think some of the crucial conversations that need to happen globally and in our societies also has to involve men. I think there's a lot more support for women taking on non-stereotypical gender roles, but there's a lot less support for men who are wanting to step outside their gender boundaries, right? So suppose you had a man who just said, oh, well, I want to give up my job and look after the kids uh, and let my wife do the heavy lifting at the workplace. What kind of support system is there for that kind of a person, right? And and recall that we are here still talking about sort of very sort of elite, classist kind of uh, people who can afford to make those choices. Um, but even lower down the ladder, if people are talking about one person scaling back, um, can men do that? What about uh, who's doing housework, who's doing childcare, even say a 60-40 ratio? I think... Now we we ought to be able to change those kinds of conversations uh, and uh, governments ought to have a much more proactive role and businesses have to have a much more proactive role. And we can get back to that uh, later on um, as we talk. But um, I would say let's not go back to 1950s because I think we have the power to change that. Right, right, Professor. Uh, do you think there will be an upside to all of this? You know, instead of challenges, can this be seen as an opportunity to include more women in the labor force, uh, for example, through gig economy? I think there can be uh, opportunities to women um, in the labor force, to including more women in the labor force. But I see that mainly, say, maybe through the tech sector, um, right, or uh, maybe through uh, public sector employment, um, I mean, tech sector largely because I think the technology is there, which helps you um, to do this remote kind of working or work from home kind of approach. And public sector employment, because I think the state as an enabler of uh, uh, employment um, ought to kick in at a much greater level and not sort of move out uh, of uh, job of job creation. The gig economy in my mind, even pre-pandemic, I think is a particularly bad example. Um, I think it's a very, very uh, exploitative kind of economic uh, system that's in place where, I mean, well, yeah, it has given some people a lot of flexibility uh, sort of to be their own uh, workers and be like self-employed and not have to sort of fit into an organizational culture. But it has also let, I think, employers get away by calling these people as independent contractors and not workers, and thereby not giving them any kinds of benefits or social security measures or safety features, right? I don't think the gig economy generally, unless it is radically restructured, uh, is generally favorable to workers. I, in my mind, that's not that's not a good way to go. Um, I think the opportunities can be utilized in other domains. Right, right, Professor. So uh, our final question for today, uh, how do you think that a business, government and society can help to reduce the adversities of this crisis and bridge the gender gap that has deepened as a result of the pandemic? Uh, well, I think let me start with government. Because I think the government really is the key here. Uh, they have to have, they have to lead by example, and I think they have to create an ecosystem 
which makes it also easier for businesses to respond, right? Um, and uh, let me also say that I think the government has to step up in a very big way, uh, which I don't think our government is certainly doing. And maybe there are some governments worldwide that are, but many places uh, there is uh, a huge shortfall. And we can also think of it as to whether we want these steps to be sort of in the short term, medium term, or um, in the long term, right? A, I think, firstly, women's role in social reproduction has to be recognized, right? Because when you're talking social reproduction, you're really talking about maintaining social and economic systems, right? When women are custodians of social reproduction, that work has is not valued at all in the in a market-based economic system that we have. So if you think that this a man is able to work 18 hours, that's because he doesn't have to have come home or worry about uh, cooking and cleaning and childcare and household management, right? So there is a value to the fact that there have been homemakers or the fact that women's uh, lot of economic activity also gets uh, not recognized. So what do can we think of social policies and legislations that recognize the opportunity cost for women due to their engagement in unpaid care work? And how can we do that? So you can think of, say, provision of old age security that is delinked from, say, labor market participation, right? Universal of provision of universal basic income for poor people. Thinking about, um, say, marital assets, systems of marital assets where women's contribution to marital assets is recognized. It's not just about who has contributed to the buying of this house, but you're also recognizing invisible um, contributions, right? And the fact that if women are not participating in the labor market now, it means it hurts their earnings ability and it also hurts their ability to accumulate wealth through labor market, right? So this is, of course, sort of a medium to a long-term measure. Another sort of uh, a medium to long-term, medium measure, uh, measure, I would say, is that uh, the pandemic has dissolved this barrier between home and the workplace, right? While at the same time, it has increased the demands of the care economy. And by that, I mean, it has increased the demands of uh, childcare and being able to work at home and doing homeschooling and all of it, right? So then the government has an important role in also regulating the labor market. You can think about anti-discrimination policies, legislating equal pay for equal value of work, providing for family-friendly policies that allow for parental leave, right? So this maternity leave policy that we had, I think, two or three years ago is very ill thought out because it just says that you have to do this and there is no support to businesses. There is, in Western Europe, the government also contributes money to paying for maternity leave and go beyond maternity leave. But if women are not having children on their own, right? Start thinking about family leave, which means it could be a maternity leave or a paternity leave and that you have to take that minimum amount, right? So, and publicly supported childcare facilities, right? So, are we in a space where the government is even thinking about all of this? Uh, I don't think so, but I think we certainly need to get there. And then when you think again of the labor market, and I would say that broadly, let's not think only in terms of gender, but we also have to think of both men and women in the labor market and how you might alter the balance of power a little bit between firms and workers. The pandemic has seen a scrapping of labor laws in many 
states and labor laws being on pause for the next three to four years because that apparently is the best way to get an investment. Is that necessarily a right move? Um, I think that's highly debatable, but we, we won't go there now. And also there, I think, uh, apart from that, and then there's a larger picture is which is to change the discourse around gender norms and responsibility so that men can be also equal partners in the care economy. Again, this is a long-term measure. And then finally, this I think could be a short-term measure is what can we do to support the weaker segments in our society, right? So you have to remember when we talk gender imbalances, gender becomes particularly crucial because women are at an intersection of very many marginalized communities. You think class, caste, religion, right? So women at the intersection of all of this are highly vulnerable, but these larger communities are also marginalized, right? So you have to think about these communities and you have to adopt a gender perspective, right? So who's most likely to suffer? Men and women in the informal sector, poorly educated, work guarantee programs, right? Which is where your universal basic income or some sort of social provisioning for the next one year is important. When we're talking about lockdown and work from home, that's a, that's about like people like you and me. I can afford to be without a salary for the next one year and I'm not going to go hungry. But those who cannot afford to are actually the ones who are unemployed, right? So what is the government going to do for them? Strengthen MGNREGA, bring work, urban workplace programs, right? This can also help you create new infrastructure, rural infrastructure, public health, uh, centers, public schools, right? Do midday meals. And then long-term gender imbalances, look out for education, look out for food security. There you do need to have a gender perspective. Make sure your young girls are not falling through the cracks um, where schooling is concerned because then you've completely lost this demographic dividend that we've been talking about, that India talks about, right? Um, child marriages are on the rise because girls have dropped out of school, there is no access to schooling and parents are getting them married in the pandemic because that's one less mouth to feed. That has huge implications for women, for children, for their health, right? So better data, better monitoring, more ground level, uh, you need a cater in the public health system and in the public schooling system. Right. So that so I think the government is the most important player because the government can lay out the ecosystem. Of course, businesses also have roles, uh, have certain sort of responsibilities. But you have to realize that businesses of their own, unless I think it's a very few, are not essentially interested in equity, right? Or they are not interested necessarily in creating an egalitarian society. They are there for several other reasons. They are thinking of shareholder value, they are thinking of profits, but you have to incentivize them also to incorporate these into their uh, into their strategies, right? So you could think about, businesses could be encouraged to think about how to fundamentally restructure work, right? Stop disproportionately rewarding overwork or penalizing flexible schedules and part-time work. Right. Let people prioritize family time and responsibilities. And this does not have to be only for women. Right. So prioritizing families time and responsibilities ought to be some sort of a mantra that can be for management as a whole for both men and women have more discussions uh, which will facilitate people to talk about all of this more conversations around work, family balancing. 
uh, help businesses, uh, can they start thinking of flexible leave policies for both men and women, right? Um, so, I mean, and also I think bring more women to uh, leadership so different uh, perspectives are recognized, right? But for businesses to achieve all of this, I think you do need a set of legislations that are progressive, right? Um, so otherwise, they are not going to do it of their own accord. Uh, you do see some progressive businesses because they are responding because they are probably headquartered in a part of the world that is far more progressive and that has better uh, family-friendly policies. So they bring some of that to our country, right? Um, so how is it that the ecosystem in this country can force them? So instead of making everything easy for the firms because you're so uh, impatient to attract employment um, and you're so impatient to attract FDI that you sort of let your citizens fall by the wayside, that doesn't really work. And society, I think we as individuals, this is a tough one. Um, what can we do? Um, I think our role a is to question the shocking levels of inequality that we see, uh, not just gender, but overall, right? Then how can we hold governments more accountable, businesses more accountable? So use the power of social media, right? You probably recall this Kent ad, Kent, I think it was a water filter ad, which sort of stigmatized domestic workers saying, are you letting her need your water? Huh, it wasn't water filter, I think it was a chapati maker. Uh, right. Um, so, I mean, but then they quickly pulled it off, right, because there was so much of backlash against it. So I think we must also be vigilant as citizens and uh, sort of protest when we see inequalities and gender inequalities or certain stereotypes being propagated. And as customers, we have a lot of power because uh, because of our purchasing power. Right. So you vote with your feet. Um, you go towards, you push businesses towards practices that are towards fair, fair trade and which have good uh, gender policies, right? So at one level, you'd see, I would say that the concept of fraternity um, is kind of absent um, in our Indian society. But when the pandemic happened, it was very heartening to see individual citizens and civil societies stepping up for crises and to reaching out to uh, the poorest section of our societies when uh, the governments failed them, right? So I think there is there is a lot that we can do as individuals. So, I mean, always take time to protest, take time to sign that petition, take time to critique, criticize, um, and use your voice um, in whichever way uh, you can, right? So I think uh, for citizens, you just have to be the change uh, that you want to see to sort of quote um, Gandhiji. Yes, right, ma'am. Um, here's hoping that, you know, going forward, there is an accelerated effort in this direction. So uh, uh, thank you, Professor Hema, for joining us for this episode of the AMB podcast. It was really, really nice talking to you today. Thank you, Ashra. Thank you. That's all for today from AMB Bangalore. We hope that you enjoyed listening to this episode of the AMB podcast. Tweet with hashtag IMBpodcast and send in your feedbacks, comments and suggestions. We'll be happy to read them. Have a great day.